There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm so excited, Amy. I'm almost going on holiday. I feel like we're ramping up for holidays. Do you know what I mean? Mm, planning my route. <laughs> Well, we're on a biggie. I mean, it's our last episode, so obviously it's important that we are doing grief and bereavement because I am mourning. I'm mourning. Amy is so upset, she can't even talk. We'll have to deal with that later through HR. But anyway, we're talking to Andy Langford from Cruise Bereavement, who have been around for 60 years, actually. And we're talking about grief and bereavement, which a lot of people have been in touch wanting us to cover this subject. So, I mean, it's a biggie. It's a biggie. But I actually started off by asking Andy where the name Cruise came from. It's actually the lady that um, set the organisation up over 60 years ago had a Christian faith. And it's the old word for the large jar of oil that one of the prophets, Elijah, gave a widow. Bearing in mind at those times, widows, you know, it was... It was really hard for them. They sort of had to beg for food. You know, it was, you didn't have any provision, did you? So he gave this jar of oil and this jar of oil continued to fill up. And she was able to use that then to make food, to provide for her and for her family. And what it symbolizes is the giving of compassion to each other. Now, grief and bereavement is a very big topic. And a lot of people have sort of asked us to talk about it. Now, when I think about, or even as I address grief and bereavement as a topic, it comes with a sense of weightiness, maybe even a sort of heaviness. And I suppose, I, did, I mean, I never plan what I'm going to say to people, but the thing is, I suppose the elephant in the room, so to speak, is death. Mm. So how much does grief do you find when people lose someone close to them, bring up one's own potential fear of death? You know, I think that's a real key issue because it's very usual that when we experience the death of someone close, our own mortality comes into focus. And so certainly what I've heard people express, our volunteers, our crews, but also the people I work with in an ongoing way myself, is that actually, They've experienced the death of someone close. Also, their own mortality and sometimes their own sort of frailty and limits come to mind. They come in starkly into focus. And what's quite usual along the way is to question things like our purpose for life. Who are we? What are we about? But as you say, there's a weightiness to these things. Isn't these, these questions matter. But often in life, it can be all the easier to not address them because life's life, isn't it? You know, we we get along, we're busy, we do things, we do what we're, we're doing at the moment, we're with the people we are with at the moment. And it's very difficult in modern life to actually stop and take account of these things. And I mean, certainly for myself, when I got over my fear of death, you know, 
I feel very fortunate because I don't sort of tend to fall into a sort of existentialism. If I lose someone, I don't fall into a sort of existential crisis. And also for me, I have a big sense of the people still being around, have done for quite a few years, really. I just sort of feel like they've just gone into another place. How much of when people come to speak to you or volunteers is about sort of reframing how we view loss of people? You know, you, you've hit upon a real key point there, Will. So it wasn't too far back, actually, but a lot of modern psychology and modern thinking around death was the idea that actually we experience the death of someone close. We then need to get to a point of moving through or beyond that grief. We have a connection and attachment with someone. We, in a way, and it might sound odd now, but we detach from them and then we attach to something else or someone else. Thought thinking around this has changed. And where there was that thinking previously, and the idea perhaps was is that you go through a set of stages of grief, some sort of preconceived notion of, of steps. Well, you know, a lot of thought now would be that it's not the case. And where that's derived from is fundamentally from people who have been um, experiencing bereavement talking about the loss. And you know, what we are seeing more and more, what we're understanding more is of how it's not so much about somehow putting the person who we love so much aside. It's actually about how we carry them with us in our lives and then into the future. And part of that, I find and we find at Cruise, is around recognising the, part, the parts of the person who has died that they've deposited in us. Mm. You know, what, what impact has that person made on our lives? How have they mattered to me? You know, fundamentally, a lot of that comes down to shared stories. You know, the stories we've shared together with the person who's died, the stories you've co-created with them, and the times we've spent together, the memories we've got, and how you can learn to, to cherish them and carry them with you. Or, or actually, if they are difficult stories, if potentially they're traumatic stories, how you carry them, but where you put them in your life so that it's as okay as it can be, it's containable in a way. And how much does the situation of the departing of someone come into play as well? Because you know, I was having a conversation a while ago, someone that I knew, I mean, they just suddenly broke down and they'd never shared how traumatic it was for them to sit next to their parents' deathbeds. Mm. And it just, this trauma just came, you know, spilling out. And I, I was so, I felt very honoured that they were sharing with me. Yeah. But, you know, when I lost my dog, she got run over oh. and it happened in front of me. It was very traumatic. But one of the things that I did pretty much in the moment was to decide that I was not going to feel guilty about it. Mm. I could have sat there and thought, this is my fault, because it was my fault to an extent. The dog wasn't on a lead. But I thought, this is going to get me nowhere. I'm not going to sit here and beat myself up because that could go on forever. When's that going to end? So I sort of never did, really. Um, so I'm using that, just sharing my own experience and contextualising a loss for me and how someone, I guess, might bring that to the table when they see someone like yourself. And there's so many examples, aren't there? And that's, that's one of, I think, the main points. Even though experiencing the death of someone who means a lot to us is a common human experience. And let's face it, we, we will all die and then leave behind people who we love, who we care for. So this is a common human experience. It's happened throughout the time humans have been alive and it will continue with other species well after we've passed. But 
The fact is, is that when we have that experience, that's unique, but it's also shared. There's something of both there. Also, I would say, I'm really glad you brought up the death of someone, a person, but also the death of your dog, who you continue to love. You know, we don't want to ever diminish the death of, of a pet. The animals mean an awful lot to us. They're part of the family, aren't they? Mm. But I think often in society, that type of loss can be sort of put aside and thought it's somehow less. Well, it's not. It matters. The life of animals, companions with us, people or other matter an awful lot to us. So we, we in a sense, sometimes we need permission to grieve those things or those people or, or those beings that perhaps we haven't had permission to grieve before. But the other, the other point I'd make on this, and it comes into something else I do, which is I am a researcher with the Open University. And what we can see through common trends is that there are certain experiences at the point of death that are more likely to make our grief more acute. So that is more painful in the immediate sense, but also potentially more long lasting. And you, you use the word trauma there, Will, as well. For some deaths, it's more likely to experience trauma. One example might be that in some way you end up reliving the situation around the death, either in memory or in some way in a sensory capacity, whether you see something that then is about the death or it reminds you of the death and then you see something visually or smell or you hear. These aren't unusual experiences, but they can lead to something that you might define as traumatic. And there are certain there are certain types of, of death, those ones that are, are sort of sudden, quite visceral. So bereavement through homicide or suicide, road traffic accidents, um, the death of an infant, for instance. And for many people, death can feel unnatural anyway. For some, it can feel natural. But it's when a particular death often feels like it's it's against the grain. You know, it's against what should be, mm. really, like very strongly. That's not to diminish any other experience. And once again, this is this is all coming from the voices of bereaved people. You know, this is how we learn is from people's stories. What is a common element is actually how we go about making meaning of the death, that person's life and then our life in the context of that death. And if we can, and often it's through struggle and it is through pain, is we can understand a little more about what that all actually means to us and where we are now situated in our lives, then that can help. I'm not saying any of that means that it will therefore make any pain and grief go away, but it can make it more possible to continue and to take forward from the person who has died those elements that are precious to us. Yes, and hearing you talk about, you know, because I guess we are primed from a young age that the older people in our lives will leave our, our lives first. So when my grandparents died, it didn't come with additional shock, you know, and I was sort of quite primed for it. And also, actually, even, let's say, for the last 10 years, I think every time I said goodbye to her, it always came with a little bit of emotion because I sort of thought, you know, how many times will I? So I've sort of felt like I was priming my body for her loss, my body, my mind, my spirit, you know, all that, my heart. But when you mentioned someone losing an infant, you know, a parent losing a child. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I, I can't even imagine. It, it must come with a... It's all lost the same. You know what I mean? Well, there are commonalities, but what we know is that people experience grief in different ways. 
and certainly what I found in life, you know, my my first bereavement was the, the loss of my great auntie Lil. And I was only about five or six when I, when she died. But I do remember that experience of grief acutely. And I remember also it being different from when my dad died um, seven years ago. Now, that would sort of make sense in a way. But I guess the point I'm making is that actually the way in which we experience the grief is down to a number of factors. But one of those major factors is the type of relationship we've had with the person when they were alive. And because everyone's an individual, you meet them in different contexts, you have a relationship with them in different contexts, and things change over time, that actually, you know, therefore the grief is going to be different. And there'll be some people who you may hear of their death, and for a short, very short time, you think, well, that was sad. Other than, of course, to someone who is closely related to them, it touches them so, so much more. It's a different reaction to, to the same death, but actually each one is unique. So the, there are differences, but what there is, is a commonality of experience in death. But what I wanted to come back to, so we don't accidentally leave it behind, is when you then said before about the death of a child must be something else. It's a, it's a really difficult experience. I was even conscious just then, bearing in mind I've worked in bereavement for 20 years, I've worked at Cruise for seven years, and I've worked in situations where young children have died, we've supported the parents, is even then I felt myself choke up and it was difficult to summon words. And actually what we know is that sometimes it's beyond words. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to actually get any words out sometimes and to sum up the experience of a death in words. And that's why what I found in, in private practice, what we found at Cruise, is that sometimes People need means other than words to express how they're feeling, what they're thinking, even what's going on in their bodies around the grief. There are lots of examples of people doing creative things, even sort of walking, shared activities, things to do that, that people would do without even expressing a word, which can be useful. Yes. So how important is a sense of uh, communal activities? So maybe relating with others who have been through a similar thing it's really really important so you could argue that actually in terms of the society we live in now in the uk and in western europe and sort of in the west it's quite individualized you know there's we, we tend to focus on ourselves and what we do and maybe at the most you might focus upon your immediate friendship group your chosen family or your, your, your immediate blood relations but of course mourning which is associated with grief it's how we express grief is so often uh, happens on a communal level. Mm. And there's loads of things that we can learn throughout the world about how people express their grief and also express the ongoing relationship that they've got with the person who's died. There are cultures who that regularly celebrate not the death of someone, but the life that someone had before they died and the impact that that person has had and continues to have once they've died. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, it's quite a beautiful thing. This is going to sound funny thing to say, maybe. But I can find funerals quite beautiful, dependent on the sort of level of tragedy around the departing of, of the individual. You know, I remember when my uncle died of cancer. I mean, he lived so much longer than we thought that he would. Mm. I got to spend some really good time with him before he died. And um, I felt it was such a celebration of life mm. when I was at his funeral. You know, and I felt weirdly sort of through his death I felt a huge sort of rush of life which would seem in a way a little bit paradoxical. You know I recall when my dad died I was there made a decision to turn the machine off it reached that point when it was sustaining him in slowly dying as opposed to the prospect of him recovering to be alive and I remember those times as being really precious it felt a privilege Oddly enough, there was a little bit of joy in that, in that like there was a quality time together, even though he wasn't he wasn't conscious. There was that quality time together, probably more time we've had together than when we previously had, really, in in terms of a block of time. But also there was sadness. And I think sometimes we can all struggle with understanding that actually we can we can usually feel two, three, or sometimes four different things at the same time. You know, you can experience the happiness of relating to someone whilst at the same time mourning that they are dying. Mm. And all of that is valid. Which I'm wondering sometimes, do people feel guilty if they're not, when someone's died, if they're not feeling constantly sad? Certainly come across that. Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly expressed it. I don't feel I can laugh or I shouldn't be experiencing this happiness. You know, even I dare not meet anyone again since my partner died I'm not deserving of being happy or fulfilled again I was speaking to someone the other day and they were saying that they they just hadn't been able to cry for their mum that had died and they felt there might be something wrong with them that they're repressing it or you know it had been I don't know seven years or something goodness people have to cry people don't have to cry but I do think there is something very therapeutic about crying Mm. There's certain things that happen to us physically that help our bodies and our minds when we cry. That said, the experience of grieving is, as we said before, quite individual. And it's also dependent upon the specific circumstance. There have certainly been people who have talked with me about how they've felt as though they've needed to behave in a certain way to grieve. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I should cry, 
but I don't want to. You know, I feel like I should have a party, but actually I don't want to be laughing and shouting with people and celebrating when really I want to sit and cry. Mm. And, and actually then where there can be a problem, I think, is when there's a disparity between how I experience the world internally, but actually how the world externally is asking me to behave. Mm. And what can happen then is you can end up in a situation of duality. I should be doing this, but I feel like this, but I'm thinking this. That can be horrendously difficult in itself. But in certain circumstances, what we see is what we call disenfranchised grief. And that's when there isn't a permission to feel like we can grieve and be grieving the way we not even want to, but the way we are. So, you know, an example for this, we come across this in crews frighteningly quite a lot, is when someone's been bereaved through um, suicide or through an addiction, sometimes through homicide as well, is those situations are such that for someone's wider social group or wider community, it might be difficult to understand or digest or even find any sort of words to express a connection to the person who's grieving. That actually it's quite usual and that the person who's grieving ends up being avoided or they, they are in some ways denied the permission to be able to grieve. You're almost like the person who has died and the circumstances around their death and the hurt around it have been denied in some way. And so if you've got this, this horrendous feeling of grief, even if there's elements as well of actually wanting to celebrate the person's life as well, the aspects that you love and cherish and remember about them, things that you found incredibly irritating about them, but made them there, that you want to remember. But yet, most of the folk around you don't want to know. That's disenfranchisement. That's when you, you have this grief that isn't given space to be expressed, even if you want to express it. Must be a very tricky situation to be in that. Gosh, that'd be really hard. And I'm sure a lot of people listening actually will, will relate to that. It's very relatable because it happens a lot. Mm. But it's an interesting one because in your, in your sort of private life, you can go to like a, like a social thing or something. You can go, well, someone who doesn't know you might go, well, what, what, what do you do for a living? Well, I work with bereavement, you know, and I have done for the last two decades. It can be a bit of a conversation stopper, with, you know. But actually, working in this field can be immensely fulfilling and it can be really, oddly enough, good humoured because what we're talking about is hope. You know, we're not just talking about death, we're talking about the future as well. And one of the things we can all do when we come across someone who is experiencing grief, not even when we come across when we deliberately, intentionally approach someone who we know may be hurting, is to express to them that we are there for them and that we are available to listen. And it's at that point when we can start to remove some of the social pressure of feeling like we've got to say the right things or we've got to do the right things. There aren't right things to say, are there? There are nicer things to say, but there's nothing that's going to fundamentally bring the person back. But you can be there for someone. Yes. And also you said something earlier, and I, when you were talking about the sort of the emotional power of grief, and something just came up to me, which was that, and I will relate it to my dog dying, I don't think I'll ever get over my dog dying. And I'm okay with that. Hmm. You know what I mean? As in like, it's such a tragedy. It was so awful. It would be worse if I was saying to myself or someone was saying to me, 
time to get over it. Now, of course, if I was sitting, you know, breaking down and, and not being able to function, then of course that's a different scenario. And I'd, I'd have to be really looking after myself and looking at why I'm having such a visceral response beyond, you know, the grief. But I'm not forcing myself to get over it. And so I guess I'm wondering if some people feel a pressure that they, it's like, well, you've had your time now. You shouldn't be now sad about your mm. parent dying or your partner dying or whatever. There's no time limit on it. Absolutely right. Although that said, there are some cultures where it can be found helpful to have a normal time of expression of mourning. Mm. Yeah. So there's, there's like an acceptance that for this time, you know, you're going to be given the space to do these things. And when the meaning behind that is explained to those that are taking part, that can be incredibly helpful. So there are those things. Yes. That said, what can be very helpful is to know that there's, there's actually quite a lot of science around understanding what the commonalities are around grieving, right? Because we all experience the death of people close. So it's a common but individual experience. And one of the, the sort of models, if you like, one of the ways in which can help us understand what's going on for us is if you can imagine a big bubble or a big balloon, right? And the balloon is the capacity that you've got to hold difficulty and emotion and distress. It's like your resilience in a way. Yes, yeah? so mm. you've got this balloon. That's your capacity. And what can happen is when we experience the death of someone fairly early on, it can feel like that balloon is just filled up of that grief of everything, even the practical aspects of trying to sort out things like the funeral, someone's estate, if a partner's died, how we take care of the children, that we take administrate things live life so all of those things are filling up this balloon and often one of the sort of uh, societal norms we've got is that idea that over a period of time that balloon that is filled up with that with the, all of that grief and all of those practical aspects eventually everything inside it will diminish it'll become smaller so therefore the balloon will be back to normal again you know you'll be able to lead normal life and do normal things and that'll be okay you know those those times when we all might have heard phrases like well you know surely it's been long enough Andy or you know it's been a year now those types of things oh god that'd be awful if someone said that well I heard it though I think often people are trying to express something with a good heart but perhaps don't really understand what they're saying yeah you know there's that idea that the grief will diminish but actually what can happen and this is something we try and support people into doing at cruise is that it's not about the diminishing of the grief it's around the growing of the balloon. So as the balloon grows bigger, as your capacity to love and experience life and understand what this person meant to you and means to you now, the balloon gets bigger. The grief stays the same in terms of size, the occupation of it in you, but relative to the, to the capacity of the balloon, it's smaller. Yes. So then what happens is we can use the experience we have around the grief and the importance of the person who's died to understand, for instance, how important relationships are, to understand how important what the meaning that that person attached to their life, what that had for them. You know, when we see people, and I've done it myself, when you, when you, for instance, run for a cause or something, you know, you see with organisations where they'll, they'll be sponsored events, we do them ourselves on cruise. 
people are running, climbing, jumping for different things mm. because someone they love has been hurt or has died or has gone through a difficult time. Yes. That's the example of the balloon expanding. And it's quite beautiful that, I mean, I've done the London Marathon a couple of times and, you know, you'd see people's with sort of messages of the people that they've lost and photos on the back of their shirts or the front. I mean, I was being overtaken. At one stage I got overtaken, no joke, by a dolphin. So, I mean, I was only seeing the backs of people's. It was a low point. Um, but, you know, it's really moving and it's so unique. And I remember saying to my dad, who's like, what's it like? And I said, oh, my God, you know, there's 30 or thousand people running and you see all these messages. And it's quite it's quite emotional. And you're running. I mean, I can feel the emotions now. And you're running this ridiculous distance that no one should ever run, you know, but it's so special and powerful. Um, I want to ask you one question, which is quite nuanced, but I think it's an important one. So one of the things that I've noticed, and I think it's really fascinating, but I don't think people talk about it enough, are often when a parent is dying, and let's say the parent is of a certain age. Mm. I mean, I've read about this, and I've also noticed it in a friend's family, that the unresolved childhood difficulties for the children Mm. come back up when the parent is dying. And I observed my friend and her siblings. It brought up so much stuff for all of them, Mm. but their behavior while their parent was dying, and these are people in their forties, was quite astounding. It brought up a lot of childhood trauma and they kind of reverted back to being these kids. And what happened was when the matriarch of the family died, the whole family fell apart. And I don't hear people speak about that enough, but I've seen it. It was like the bubble burst and the family just fell apart. Mm. I wonder how often have you ever seen that? Yes, sadly. Sadly, we see a lot of that, Cruz. One of the key words you used there, Will, was unresolved. Mm. Because if something is unresolved, then usually, and this is where in an odd way, there can be an, an optimism. Okay, I will come back to that to qualify it because I'm not saying it's a difficult situation, very difficult, but... No, we love optimism. Yeah, well, well, because if something's unresolved, when it's expressed, usually we are seeking some form of resolution. Some behaviour keeps coming back because we need viscerally some resolution to what's happened. We might not realise that all the time, but we're seeking some form of resolution. So it keeps being replayed, keeps being replayed. And so that that isn't unusual. The unresolved aspects come to the surface. It sort of almost meets, it's like a a fulcrum, you know, it sort of meets at that point. But actually, there is something we can do about this. What we're doing more and more at Cruise is we're trying to encourage people to have conversations when they know that someone's on a journey towards death. I mean, ideally, really well before that, I would say. But actually, when someone's on that journey, to try and have those conversations to resolve things before someone gets to the point of not being able to communicate, that actually some of those things that might have been left unresolved can be resolved. And also, even things that you might think are going to be okay somehow, but are more practical, but they cause conflict afterwards. Mm. The one of the things I would recommend that's practical is, is and I'm not being endorsed by anyone saying this, but please get a will. Mm. 
the amount of conflict that we see that results from people who haven't expressed, I don't lay any blame here, but we haven't got to a point of expressing what your wishes are when you died around you, your belongings, things that mean stuff to people. That can cause intense conflict because folk don't know and there's lots of pain then at the time. Whereas if someone's wishes are clearly expressed, then generally people stick with those and respect them. Yeah, and kind of legally they have to as well. Well, they do. But I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, it wouldn't surprise you to know that there's lots of challenge with that sometimes. Yes. yes. But generally, there's a respect for the person who's died and their wishes. And, and that can actually, if there's conversations before that, then it can mean that some elements that where there would be conflict are resolved to a point sooner. And then it's more, and I'll just finish on this point, and then it's, it's more possible for those that are grieving to come together in community, if you like, and be able to then grieve in their own way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I suppose as a sort of overall sort of little soundbite for people who are struggling with grief and bereavement, what would you say to those people in regards to the service that you're doing and maybe sort of words of encouragement? Sure, I'd say absolutely. First off, you know, be gracious with yourself. Give yourself some time and space to grieve. There are some times when you'll feel like you want to be on your own and cry um, or be still. There are other times when you'll feel like you really need to be with people. All of that is understandable and okay. Gather people around you as much as you can who you know you can trust. They don't need to say the right words or do the right things, but it's important for them to be there for you when you need them. Well, that's lovely. Thank you. And how can people get hold of you guys if they need to? Uh, go onto our website and you can then uh, find us on um, cruise.org.uk. Uh, we've also got our helpline there and you'll find the details of the helpline straight on the page as soon as you go onto the, uh, the website. How do you spell it? C-R-U-S-E. Well, Andy, thank you so much. I think a lot of people will get a lot from your wise words. And thank you for sharing and imparting wisdom and letting us know about the work that you guys do. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Well, that was fascinating. Really interesting. I mean, I think there's so much to dive into that world of grief and bereavement. And obviously we didn't talk about, you know, you can feel grief and bereavement for a relationship ending, you know, or a job ending, or even having to leave a house, you know. So there are lots of things you can grieve that aren't necessarily the departing of a living soul. But we just didn't have time to get into it. But I just wanted to acknowledge that. Well, here are your final messages for the final show of season two. Let's get down to business, Amy. There's not even an introduction, Amy, on this. It just comes out pure and simple. The episode on codependency is full of amazing information and advice. What a gem of a podcast. Well, thank you so much. Hi, Will. I'm just loving listening to the podcast each week. It makes me feel less alone in dealing with my mental health. Keep up the good work. I'm feeling happier than ever and loving the gym life. Well, ah, yes, I'm about to go to the gym. Well done. Uh, hi, Will. Just listened to Dr. Chetna Kang podcast on BPD. It was so enlightening. My daughter was diagnosed with BPD about six years ago and unfortunately took her own life a year ago. I'm really sorry to hear that. She was 33 years of age. Your podcast was the most informative info I have heard on BPD. She was on five drugs, three of which were controlled drugs, but none were a mood stabiliser, which is what Dr. Kang suggested. 
She fought to get CBT but was only allowed so many sessions. At the inquest into her death, the good thing that came out of it was a Regulation 28 Prevention of Future Deaths on the Health Authority to look at the way they currently treat patients with BPD and review the support and the treatment they're giving. Well, that's really good. And well done to you and your husband for going through that and, um, you know, pushing through changes because you go on to say me and my husband are having regular meetings with the trust, which I presume is the health authority that your daughter was under, so they can update us on the proposed changes. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And you have to be really strong with that. So well done. And also, it's OK if you're not strong. Thanks for all you're doing. You go on to say to enlighten people about mental health. It was my pleasure. And I'm so pleased you listened and you got something out of it. Thank you, and thanks for getting in touch. Very moving. Hello, I'm a regular listener, and I absolutely love the podcast. Will, you have so much curiosity and gentle passion for all of the topics. This is good. As a mental health practitioner myself, it is so refreshing to hear well-being topics discussed so deeply but compassionately. Thank you. And finally, hey, Will, you have such a soothing and relaxing voice. Maybe it's because I've been doing a lot of acting recently. Have you ever considered doing an audio series with guided meditation or calming storytelling? I mean... It's out there, Amy, now, isn't it? Maybe that's our next little project. We do calming meditations. <gasps> Will and Amy go shopping. Thanks so much for listening to this season. We'll be back with season three. Not sure when, but we will be. But in the meantime, yes, do keep messaging and um, keep building the Wellbeing Lab community. With this podcast, I want to take a look at mental health, talking to you know people that live it, either by experiencing it and or helping others with various conditions. So we try and come with compassion, a bit of lightheartedness and some information and guide you towards how you can lead a better life, hopefully, which is what we all want, isn't it, really? Because life's not always easy, externally or internally. Anyway, if you want to get in touch, suggested topics. I mean, you know Amy and I love an outside broadcast, so we're always up for doing more things. It's a shame we can't do something purely about tree-hugging. But do get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Lots of love. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the ACAST Creator Network? It's true. <laughs>